proud of you, the podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Schufreiter. Welcome back. It's been a while. Everything okay? Don't worry. We're good on our end. Uh, you know, schedules, lots going on. You know, projects, work, life, sleep. So, yeah, we're just busy, but don't worry. We have episodes still in the works, like today's episode. Today, we have Annie Tip, director and writer and devised artist. Annie and I discussed on Zoom many, many things, being from New York, directing New York, and her upcoming musical of Life After, playing at the Goodman, June 11th to July 17th. Explores how we move through loss and live with loss. Here is my conversation with Annie Tip. Hello, Annie. Hello. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. So I, I we're in year, who knows of how long we'd have been doing pandemic life. Yeah, don't pandemic. ask me. Yeah, right. I don't, I don't know. Uh, um, but even though, you know, obviously the world of theater has kind of changed and there's, you know, we're wearing masks half the time or uh, we're tape marks or we're getting nasal or, or swab tests every couple of days. Um, how does it feel? And you've seen, and just doing the research about you, you never seem to stop working, which I applaud and admire so much. Um, whether you seem to be in a rehearsal room, you're, you're in a casting room as well. Um, but how does it feel? Um, I, I am really lucky that after two years actively not working, I did not have a show, a play to my name. Um, I am now. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in rehearsal for a show. I just wrapped a show and I have a show coming up right after this, which is just kind of the blessing of <laughs> the pandemic pushing all this work um, into a very brief six month period. And I feel, I, I just pinch myself every day. I had forgotten how much I, I need to be doing what I'm doing and how lucky I am to do it. So it's great. Right. I'm a little tired, <laughs> a little like out of practice, you know, like when you haven't run a mile in a while and you're like, Ooh, mm-hmm. it's a little harder than I remember it. Well, it's like when, you know, I was blessed enough to do a show last fall and maybe it was just for the actor and me, but for some reason, like once you go into the audition room, it feels like no time has passed. I don't know. Did you yeah. feel that, that same way too, when you first had that first read through or that first meeting? Yeah. Yes. And no, I feel like, you know, right now I'm working on a musical called Octet and we did it in 2019. So there's this familiarity of like, oh, no time has passed because we've done this show. But in two years, um, people have uh, their lives have changed. They've moved. They've had children. They've had sick family members. So it it feels like I'm doing a different show. Um, And in auditions, too, I, I, I. I love auditions. I love auditioning performers. I think it's, you know, it is a beautiful part of the process. And hopefully when folks join me in an audition room, it's not like a horror (laughs) and a nightmare, but just like something fun and a chance to play. But I find people are different that they're, they're not used to doing it. And so they, there's, there's, um, yeah, something in the air has just changed. Um, It doesn't feel like we're back to what was. We're kind of embarking on like what is soon to be. 
Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's not a rust. You don't think, I don't, I don't think it's that too. I think it's just. No, no. It It's, it's your body carrying the trauma of the time that has passed. Right. And you can't, you can't really shake it off. It just like, it lives in all of us now and it's a collective experience. Um, and no, we're all just carrying more. We're carrying more and then we actually do it. And it's like, oh, yeah. wait, this is, this is new and weird all over again. Yeah. And shows that you signed up to do, you know, before the pandemic, like you come back to them, if you're lucky, if the show happens again and you're like, whoa, this hits in a different way. You know, like it's incredible how, how current events and the, stat, the state of our world can in a day change the content of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Did the pandemic change your view on what kind of stories you want to tell? And I admire the fact that in a lot of your work, it's all world premieres or debuts of stuff of new stories you know like I said this is a Chicago podcast and I asked you because you're you're going to be here in the summer directing this musical called Life After um and just reading about it I'm ready to cry um yeah like what sort of stories do you like tell maybe from compared then and now I, I that's such a great question I don't feel like um the stories I want to tell are different. I, I, but how I approach my work is wildly different. The right. way that I'm with people in a room, the way that I we process the piece, how I spend my time, um, that is different. I've always what I wanted. What I want to do when I work on plays is work on something new and exciting and not yet even fully formed that we can all collaborate on and. If the story moves me or confuses me or baffles me or like even angers me, I want to work on it. <laughs> like I want something that's going to make me feel like I, I, you know, the puzzle will be worth the journey. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's why the work that I've done, it, it's pretty wildly different. I mean, right before the shutdown, I, I, you know, I did someone's brand new kind of downtown New York play and immediately started working on a show for National Lampoon for a comedy sketch show and was then supposed to go into this beautiful play about male friendship. Like none of the content necessarily relates, but it's all, it's just stuff that I felt like I could offer shape to and illuminate the writer's voice in a, in a hopefully an exciting way. Um, but yeah, the way that we treat each other in the room now, I mean, it has to be different um, because we were not doing well before the pandemic, you know, right. the, the, the hours, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you know, like the hours, the power structures, the imbalance in terms of who is in the room, who gets to be in the room. It was all, you know, uh, <laughs> not highly uh, functioning so right yeah. but, it's, but even the focus has changed you know I did a, like like I said like when I when actors are in the room we don't have time to play anymore because it's mm-hmm. we, a, we we have to get this done and b you know who knows what's gonna happen yeah 
like that's the like I was doing a show and before you know it we shut down I got COVID another person in the cast got COVID and then we were done we were done and so I wonder if just enjoying the moment is still there I think it's I think we really have to um really hold on to that too um I, I, I think we I, I think first... we took for granted you know how lucky we yeah, were yeah, yeah. doing it I, I think um, I so agree with you. And I kind of feel like now <laughs> it's like that uh, COVID commercial phrase they always use, like now more than ever. Um, <laughs> but I, I truly feel like now more than ever, like what is the point of us doing any of this if it is not joyful and rewarding? Like truly, what is the point of being a cog in a machine for not enough money, um, <laughs> you know, and um too much of your time given and six days a week and 60 hours and 10 out of 12 tech days. It's like, what, what is the point? So I feel like if we're not slowing down now, or at least trying to acknowledge, like, what are the things that make this joyful? I actually don't see what the point is. Um, um, and ultimately, right, our art is for an audience. So it can't be, it's not entirely self-indulgence, not all about our experience. But of course, like, you see when people are having a good time, you see a healthy dynamic, you feel when the energy is good between a group of people. So yeah, it's like that phrase, like you have to make yourself happy to make other people happy or whatever that is. <laughs> something, something like that. Something, uh, well, that's yeah. what I think about theater. Yeah, it's not in the script. We, we didn't, there's no, we, we can't call line yet, you know. Yeah, and let's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's and let's talk about a little briefly about life after. Um, what? Wh how would you describe the show? I mean, I said it's going to make you cry, but from your perspective, how? What do you think it's about? Oh, I I just love this show. It's a new musical. Uh, yeah, it's called Life After by this wonderful, brilliant composer named Britta Johnson, and it is a beautiful piece about a young woman. Um, teenager uh, named Alice who loses her father very suddenly and has to kind of go down the literal rabbit hole to figure out what happened and how could she have impacted or not impacted the results. And ultimately, I think it's an incredibly funny and moving show. Um, it is sad in the way that, you know, life is painful, but I find it to be very funny, very moving show about, um, having to grow up a little too early and how we give our give ourselves the space to grieve mm -hmm. and feel. Um, yeah. Which feels pretty relevant for anyone who's just gone through the last two years. Like, how do you, how do you allow yourself to process instead of just kind of like go, go, going and trying to, you know, survive the pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's so beautiful. I feel so lucky to be to be doing it. And I hate to be to ask such a stereotypical question, um, but what do you hope audiences take away from a show like that? It sounds so cliche to say because you know we hope they you hope they would enjoy it or take something. Yeah, from, yeah. But it, this feels like this feels so much more. You know, and what you said yeah. about this plot. What do you think? Oh, I, I, I love that. I, I, I want people to remind themselves that um, we and our loved ones are three-dimensional people. 
we contain multitudes and in the pain of losing someone, I think sometimes you can forget <laughs> or it's hard to see them as the full person that they were. Um, so I think part of it is just like acknowledging um, the multitudes that each person in your life contains. And then I hope it will also give the audience permission, honestly, to, to feel. Um, I know that's like incredibly simple, but I, I'm the kind of person who, if I can, I will, I will control my feelings. I will compartmentalize them. I will do whatever I can sometimes not to feel because it feels like the best way to survive. And even though this show is about this young woman and her father, anyone who has gone through these two years knows what it's like to be in an enormous amount of pain right. and have to suppress it in order to try and stay ahead of it. And you know, another thing I think is acknowledging that you, we can't go back to before. It's like your first question, like, can, can, can we, you know, does theater feel like it did or can we get back to this place? And much, with, much like with grief and much like with the pandemic, there is no going back. Mm. It is about like contending with and accepting and living in the new reality that we have. Um, and that that's that's kind of the main thing for an audience is just to acknowledge like you are where you are mm -hmm. on your journey <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I hope, they, I hope they laugh and accept it yeah or you know or do what you like I mean who am I <laughs> to tell people what to do uh, you can I mean you have I think you have that much power or I just I just yeah I, yeah yeah I guess with like really loud posters yeah. hanging in the back of my set. Yeah, it's like, like the old Batman this. cartoons, you know, wham, bam, love, something like that. <laughs> I love that. Cry here. Yeah. <laughs> you exhale. You wish, You're okay. Yeah, you wish yeah. the playwright would like have that in, in like the little, little um, insert tear moment here or hopefully this exactly. will be good. I know. Sometimes I feel like that in previews. I'm like, uh, it's like... Um, it was like Jeb Bush on the campaign trail saying, please clap. You know, like sometimes like, oh God, please, someone <laughs> laugh, mm -hmm. help, please, please. clap. <laughs> so speaking of um, manners, sure. Uh, let's talk about young Annie. And is it true you're from uh, California? Yes, I'm from Los Angeles. Um, I grew up in LA and I lived there until I was 18 and moved to New York for school. And my parents were both, uh, my mom works in film and my uh, father was, uh, he worked in animation and was a teacher. Um, so I had like an arts, you know, some very supportive arts parents, which I feel very lucky about, um, lucky to have had. And then I ended up in New York and I've, I've been there ever since, which has been, a, a a while. <laughs> now I've been there qu quite some time. I was saying, what were you like as a child in this, I would assume, artsy fartsy household? Um, I was like, a, I was a, I was a director. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched, I've watched kind of horrifying videos of myself as a kid. And it's just me with my friends. And I'm like, okay, go here, go here. Okay. Can we come down and you talk to the video and, um, so goofy, you know, it's like, it's kind of amazing to see your young self and be like, oh my God, I became her. Right. Um, I, I, 
yeah. And I love to sing and I love to dance. And I had a kind of insane and very niche imagination <laughs> um, <laughs> that's I'm still kind of baffled by and confused by. Um, and um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm lucky. I feel like I just had a beautiful, a beautiful childhood. And it was also, I find this very influential, but my mom was obsessed with sports. So we didn't take art class. Like we didn't, you know, we didn't do performance. We didn't do anything except for sports growing up. So it was kind of like basketball, tennis, soccer, nonstop, endless team sports um, until I got to high school. And then I was like, mom, please, God, like, can I be in a play? Were you good? And she finally relented. I think I was excellent at sports and I do feel it is not to brag. Um, <laughs> I feel like I need to ask again, were you really good at those sports? No, I should, I'm, I'm so self-deprecating about every part of my life, except I, I do think I was a very good athlete, um, particularly basketball, but those days are gone. I was thinking about that. Yeah, right. I it's okay because my dad was a baseball coach and he would make me play baseball and uh, and I was so tall and I was so afraid of the ball and I forgot yeah. I was so bad because every time the ball would come I would do a lot of this all the time. Yeah, and because yes, you're a sensible person. And my dad, my dad would go, Matt, today's a new day, and I would strike out and I go, but not today, and I would go back <laughs> to the bench and play and just say, I want to be out the next inning. God, that's a great line. Today's a new day. That's so beautiful. Right? I, he was probably quoting some kind of show or something, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. How great. And then how disappointing to miss. <laughs> I thought, but I thought the deli- I thought the punchline was there. So clearly I had to make it yeah. a comedian, but I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a great black outline. Right. I killed it. But not only that, you were also uh, uh, an actor as well. And I remember, and you said something in an interview that like you were starting to feel like a director on stage when you were performing of like how this doesn't feel right or this doesn't feel right or I should be here. Uh, was that during high school or and that kind of how it led to you wanting to um, direct? Um, no, I think it was after college because um, I love, I loved performing. Um, I love performing and I, I, I went to, NYU and they have this program called Playwrights Horizons and it's one of the studio NYU has a bunch of studios and you know some it's like this is the studio for pretty actors and this is the studio for very serious David Mamet stuff and this is the studio for the freaks (laughs) ETW and my studio you could you could do multiple disciplines and no one would be like you need to focus your energy you need to focus on this they were like okay you want to be a director who's also a costume designer and an actor, great. And that's what I did. So all through school, I, I costume designed like my mom, I performed and I directed plays. And when I got out of school, I continued performing, but I found the, the, the passion for it kind of being slowly replaced by anxiety and mm. distraction. I, 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 I wondered as directors were directing me, I, I wondered about the big picture and I had trouble staying in the moment and it, being vulnerable, which is so, it's like the miraculous thing that performers do that I, I never really could let myself do is like, oh, 
open and be witnessed by other people. Um, and I feel like I get to do that through directing. Like I feel like people can see my heart and my soul through the people on stage without me having to, you know, butcher it <laughs> myself. Um, so yeah, I, I have like a love and a deep respect for it, but I'm deeply grateful to no longer be doing it. <laughs> and I still have ni nightmares about it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that certain moment? Was it a show or was it slowly creeping up? It was an acting class. I, I signed up for an acting class after college because um, I didn't take too many in school. My classes were very director focused. Yeah. And it was the first day of the class. I had signed up. I'd gotten a few parts and this and that. And I thought, okay, I should keep this practice going. And I just got into the class and I sat down and two very talented people went up and I just immediately said to myself, I shouldn't be here. Hmm. I shouldn't be here. Um, and, you know, I was like, huh, that's a weird feeling to have after you've played, paid an enormous amount of money for a, you know, 10 pack of classes. Right, <laughs> but, right. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I'm, I, I can't even remember. I think the last thing I performed in was something that I also contributed music to as a like a co-composer so even then it felt like I was already one foot out the door and I just wanted to focus I I could tell my energy was pointed elsewhere so yeah it was just a few a year or two out of college that I thought all right I'm gonna go all in on directing um and I continued to costume design because that actually was kind of paying some of my bills um at that time um but I eventually, I let that go too. And I'm sure, and parents wise, were they, I'm assuming they seemed fine with it, but do you, was there ever a disappointment of like, I wish my parents saw me on stage rather than me sitting with them and showing mm. them what I've done instead, you know? My parents, um, they're so loving and they're so honest. Um, my late father when he was growing up um was a director he was a theater director you know like right out of high school that was his passion and uh, honestly I I can't tell you that I have better memories than my father coming and seeing plays that I had directed and you know they were always proud but for him to be able to see something that I was doing that he did you know as a kid like I I, I you know it just meant, it meant so much more to me um, because they also work in a craft where they were both, they both collaborate with directors. My mom is a costume designer for film and TV. She works firsthand with directors. So she knows what a director does. And I guess maybe that's, most people don't know what a director does. Yeah. <laughs> so to have parents who understand the craft and the heartbreak and the challenges um, and to be able to support you anyways, like that's, it's just lucky. I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm lucky, um, in that way. Were your parents ever really honest in terms of your projects? I like, oh my uh, God. Yeah. yeah. My mom, Ooh, she, I mean, she's so smart and she's always right. Um, and she's really supportive, but when she gives a note, I'm like, got it. Like, I will take that. Um, cause she's, you know, she's been doing this for 50 years. Um, and my last show, I just finished a show in New Jersey and she came and saw it. She's so nice. She came and saw it and I said, all right, what do you think? And she was like, no notes. 
And I didn't believe her. I was like, no, you must have something. And she was like, Annie, I genuinely enjoyed it. I have no notes. Um, so yeah, that's, that's nice when that happens. Right. It's like, the, it's like you wish it was like the scene in marriage story when, you know, it's the end of the, the closing night and Scarlett Johansson's like, okay, you clearly have notes. What, what do you have for me? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's less hard to get from your parents. It, it is more complex to get from a partner. Right. <laughs> My parents are not actors, but every time we see a show that I do, you know, when I went to Columbia and Chicago, they were very confused yeah. of like, okay, what is this Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? And wait, <laughs> this makes no sense at all. I'm like, look, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't understand the play either. However, I- Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to show up, get into costume and- <laughs> Listen, this beard is real. Let me have this moment, please. And stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. Just say congratulations like everyone else who lies, <laughs> who lies right. after they see a show. Right. My parents were more like, all right, what do you want to go and eat? And I was like, all right, well, <laughs> let's, I'll fine. You're going to buy me food. I'll, I'll take as a job. Yeah, take, take, take the dinner. Listen. Right. Seriously. Like if there's a, any message we can get for tonight is if your parents are there, make sure they're buying you dinner. Take the dinner. Yeah. Right. Love that. So, so you do directing for a while and um, what do you think your big, the big break was, or where do you think it lies. Uh, so funnily, it's related to when I was still performing. Um, one of the last things I did as a performer was uh, I, 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 loved, I loved to sing. And I was in a workshop of a musical called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Mm -hmm. And I knew the director, Rachel Chafkin. Um, she had been my teacher in school. And she was like, come, be in this workshop. Um, and I was just kind of brutally miscast. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, right away, I, again, got the feeling I was like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> but I met the composer, this brilliant, wonderful, sweet man named Dave Malloy. And, you know, we struck up, uh, we struck up a friendship and he ended up coming to see some dingy 10 minute basement workshop thing that I did. And he really liked it. And at one point emailed me and said, Hey, you know, I have this new musical. I would love for you to come sit in on a rehearsal. And I just, you know, I was like, oh, okay, guess he needs notes. And I went and sat in on the rehearsal. And then um, he was like, okay, I'd love for you to direct it. And it was this piece called Ghost Quartet. Um, and Ghost Quartet, it's this odd, odd four-person musical. The performers are also the band. Um, it's wonderful, weird, strange piece. And the show ended up doing really well. It, 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 it was my first show, I think, that got proper reviews in the Times. And, you know, it, it feels petty, but like in New York theater, especially at that time, it's kind of like ev ev everything kind of funneled into, you know, do you get the one good review from the one old guy? Yeah. <laughs> who, but because of that, it allowed us to tour and we toured the show for years. And I, we went to Scotland, we went to Texas, California, uh, just all over um, Boston. Um, and because of that, I, I, I was able to get a little bit more um, exposure. And I started, you know, slowly getting hired. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's all been new work. It's really, for the most part. Was that on purpose, you think, for you to want to do new work? No, 
<laughs> I, I left school and I thought I was like, I'm going to direct old plays. I had done Spring Awakening by Vedekind and, uh, for my thesis. And I was like, I want to do old plays. And I, I think a lot of people who study directing, when they, they go to school, they're like, I'm going to revamp <laughs> because you don't get a lot of exposure to new work. Right. Um, or at, least at that time, there were not a lot of college programs focused on new playwrights. But I, my mentor was this you know, director, Rachel Chafkin, who's yeah. just brilliant. And she, her company, um, a company called The Team, they were doing generative new work. And I just fell in love with the process of getting to create something from the ground up with performers and writers. It's like an addiction to coming up with the idea and fighting and it's like Sondheim, like make a hat where there never was a hat. Like th right. that addictive feeling of, of all of the sudden, like having a script that two months ago didn't exist. Um, yeah. And so the desire to work on old, old material just totally went away. So if someone came up to you and they said, hey, I want to do, I don't know, the cherry orchard. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, it's like, <laughs> check out. But you know, it's like there are brilliant people who would do a brilliant job at that. And I think where my skill set lives is maybe supporting writers and like making a new thing. Mm -hmm. and, sure. and like a living, a living play. Yeah. All right, so, so then I have to throw the, the curveball. If there is a show that has been done, what mm. and you want to direct it, what would it be? Play or musical? Mm. Oh my God. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I mean, I would love another crack at Spring Awakening, the play. Mm -hmm. It's it's my you know what? Actually, that's not true. My favorite play of all time is Death of the Salesman. I, I almost wouldn't dare. I know. It's like everyone has daddy issues. So it's like it always works, in my opinion. <laughs> Every time I see it, I, I'm like instantly crying. Um, but I, I maybe Death of the Salesman, like when I'm ready to face it. Um, right. It's a really wonderful play, Spring Awakening. Um, oh, so many like beautiful musicals we're just talking about Chicago today and I'm like man that is a Chicago Fiddler on the Roof these are like perfect shows right. that I think and that's the pressure right when you work on a perfect classic it is all on you whereas when you're working on a new work it, it is it's a shared effort um to tell the story and make the story and when you're doing a revival it's like ooh, it's it's yours to can we swear on this podcast go for it I was going to say, it's yours to fuck up. So There you go. <laughs> <laughs> My old teacher and I, we, we, um, I was in college, we had this idea of uh, gender bedding the front page and making it all female and just, yeah. and then seeing what would happen with that. She's like, and her idea was, because she was um, teaching this drag class and she's like, I just want to see, I'm, I'm tired of this all men show. Let's just see what would happen yeah. if we just flip it on its head and see what happens. And I was like, I want to, I would be there front row just to see <laughs> what you would bring to that. Yeah. Yeah. People are so inventive. I mean, it's kind of fabulous seeing a revival of something. And it's like, oh, okay. We're setting this in a cave and everyone is wearing, you know, disco costume. Great. Right? Let's see how that, <laughs> let's see how that works. I'm all for the freaky revival. Right. We, back in January, I did an audio play 
uh, description of Dumb and Dumber. And we, 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 not, we not only did we gender bend it, uh, but it was a cast of only four. So you had Harry and Lloyd, and then this one actor, he would play everything else for the 90 minutes of this play. And then you have me as this British narrator, because it was literally just a masterpiece parody. And we were just so, so it's like, hello, welcome to Masterpiece. And then this is Dumb and Dumber. And, and literally just the goal was we wanted to screw with everyone's head the entire time just to see what would happen. And cannot tell you how many times we had to redo the takes mm. because the actors would literally bring props with them. <laughs> so I, there, she was, both of them were like, I won't feel in character if I don't actually put my tongue on a pole or aluminum foil or wear some stupid hat. And literally I was like, just go for it. And yeah, hey, who are we to critique someone else's process? <laughs> right? I, that's why I just, why I just narrated. Um, so you were talking about your, your mentor, uh, Rachel Shafkin. Um, you know, you guys, obviously you met her in college, but um, what was your first impression of her? And has she ever told you what she first thought about you and what you think <laughs> she thought you'd become? I know what she thought of me because I think I got a review from her. You know, your teachers write reviews at the end of the year. And right. <laughs> I think she was like <laughs> something like, Annie's pretty good. She could use a bit of focus and work <laughs> a little harder. <laughs> I think, Rachel, I was just shocked at how um, self-assured but generous she was. And I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, she must have been 25 when she was teaching us. Like she was quite you know, she's not much older than I am. And she was so accomplished. Um, but in no way, um, <laughs> I don't know if this is the right use of this word, like braggadocious, like no, um, sh she was humble, but um, proud. Mm -hmm. And it really drew people to her, it drew me to her to see someone who felt um, really assuredly like they could lead a room. And I also, you know, my impression of directors prior to working with her were the ones I had seen on film and TV. Men yelling through, uh, <laughs> I don't The know. David Lynch kind of thing, like, yes. all right, and cut. And cut, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, and I'd studied directors in school. I had studied Robert Wilson, like directors who were very exacting of how exactly they wanted you to stand and pose. And I'd read about Fosse, you know, his directing and choreography. And Rachel, the way she worked with the actors, it was so, again, generative. Like she treated herself and the writers, I'm sorry, and the actors as writers on a piece. Even with a given text, she kind of was like, I think we're all writers. All of our contributions change and mold the script. Um, and that's why people love, I, they adore work working with her. She's just beloved. Um, but she can make a hit, you know, she's Hades town running on Broadway right now and won a Tony for it. And she's a superhero, you know, <laughs> she's, she like heads up all these things in our union and works on a lot of social justice and her own work. And it's overwhelming to have a mentor and a friend who is so they're just operating at such a high level. And it's sometimes difficult for me, like working for her, assisting her and collaborating with her. Cause I thought, Oh my God, like on my best day, I could never operate at the, at the capacity that she has. So you kind of, you kind of have to separate yourself at some point from your, your idols and be like, okay, 
like we are different people and <laughs> I, I will just have to move at the pace of my own wheel. No matter how hard you try, you try oh, to be impossible. like, you, you, no matter how hard you try to be like them, it's surely impossible. It's like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's okay. Yeah. I would, I would literally, there was professors I would look up to in college. And I was like, if I say how they say their things, then I'm sure we like them. I, I had a professor who would always say for sure, for sure, for sure. The entire time. And mm-hmm. Honestly, God, by the end of it, it just sort of leaned on parody. And it was like, and no one was taking me seriously at this point. I was like, well, this is gonna right away. I know, right? That's, that's like getting older and not just directing, but like coming into adulthood is kind of trying on other people's hats and being like, huh, let me see. Could I do it like that? Um, and I assisted many directors, but Rachel's style, you know, you, you're desperate to emanate until you realize it can't be done. You just have to find your own cookie version. Right. Right. Well, I have to know. Uh, so we, I, something I was more impressed with, um, we were, t- I was listening to an interview you said, and you talked about the power of no, and you were, you know, project from project to project. And, I, and you, and you uh, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, you didn't mind the burnout at times or like the burnout would just happen and you, you know, would acknowledge it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm like, I was addicted to being busy. Um, mm-hmm. and I was addicted to the feeling that I had like a greater capacity than I had to be like, I can do it. I can do anything. I can right. do four shows at once and I can work my two day jobs and I can sleep you know, five hours a night and I can, um, and, and there are pros to actually pushing yourself at points to be like, okay, I, I'm like, I have more, um, width, uh, bandwidth than I thought I had. And at the same time, it's like, oh, I wonder why my body is like breaking out in hives. (laughs) You know, I wonder why I'm sick all of the time. I wonder why my back keeps going out and, and just realizing like sometimes anxiety, it can bypass you so that you don't even know you have it and then take hold of your body and your body has to be like, Hey, you need to stop. Like, this is very unhealthy. Like you need to, you need to say no (laughs) enough times that you feel like you can actually give, you know, a hundred percent to the things you're working on. Otherwise you're, it's like, I feel like we all have that phase where you're like, okay, I'm giving everyone 40% mm-hmm. and I'm disappointing actually everyone and pleasing no one. Right. Because I felt, you know, I, I, in my hubris felt I could do it all. You still struggle with that? Do you, are you still in this phase of not saying no enough? Um, it was hard because for two years I didn't work at all. And I really had to face my fear of not being busy and truly, you know, I was lucky to have a day job through, uh, through the pandemic, but beyond that, I had to kind of sit in the pain of what it felt like to not work and to just be with myself, which can be hard for some people, you know, um, people like me who don't love and cherish their alone time. Um, but no, now I find saying no, it's not just like an act of self-protection. It's like, Hey, you've got a great piece. I actually don't think I'm the best person for this. 
I think there's someone else who will feel more passionate and will understand this work better than I can. It's not just me being like, no, it's, it's kind of like, why don't you find someone who's obsessed with the thing that you've written? Mm-hmm. Um, and just because I'm not doesn't mean it's not good. It just means, you know, I, I need to read something and feel, I need to feel kind of crazy almost the way you feel when you have like a crush on someone and you're like, whoa, what are these feelings? I feel crazy. I feel weird. My legs feel like jello. Like that's how I need to feel. Otherwise, how could I give seven weeks of time obsessing over it if if I wasn't absolutely obsessed? And, and, And that's like, you know, that's a privileged position to be able to say no to things that can potentially pay your livelihood. Yeah. But my, my, my MO has always been you know, if I'd rather work my, I'm a, I'm a personal assistant for my day job and I, it's a beautiful job, great family. And I'm like, if I'd rather be there, I shouldn't do it. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say yes. Right. Have you had to say no to some projects recently? Um, yeah, I was supposed to go, I was supposed to go out of town um, as an associate director for a show that was going to go to Korea. Um, Brilliant show. Um, Associate directing, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically taking someone else's work and putting it up on a new stage or maintaining it. And I've done that a lot over the course of my career. Um, And I found myself, you know, when I took the job, I was like, oh my God, money, livelihood. I haven't worked through quarantine. I'm desperate, you know, like maybe this could happen help my healthcare. And the closer and closer we got, the more red flags for me personally, I was yeah. like, you know, again, the anxiety rising up, my body acting weird, telling me like, Annie, something's not right here. And, and so I, I pulled out of the job and it was the right call for me. And someone else brilliant went and did the job, but I'm like, man, I'm so glad I said no. And so now my new practice is, can you say no earlier so right. that you're not putting other people's uh, other people into challenging situations. That's great. Well, speaking of no, uh, <laughs> we can't really say no to this because we're about to play a game. And this game, I, love games. I, I think you're gonna love it. This game is called Time for Two. And how it works is it's two minutes on the clock and it's a series of random icebreaker questions. There is no right, there is no wrong. Uh, I'm just very, very curious to see what your opinion is. Okay. All right. Are you are you ready? I'm scared. I'm ready. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be great. You're gonna get the part. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Would you rather have unlimited tacos for life or unlimited sushi? <gasps> tacos. Things you buy most often at a grocery store. Peanut butter. The best part of waking up is my morning tea. Do you think a hot dog is a sandwich? No. Favorite fairy tale. <laughs> Favorite fairy tale. Um. Uh, uh, what's a fairy tale? Uh, Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> great. Uh, what movie would be greatly improved if it was made into a musical? Oh, uh, Bernie, the Richard Linklater film. Oh. Uh, if not this, what other occupation? Oh, an art historian. Uh, what did you have for breakfast today? 
Oh, weird breakfast. I had two hard-boiled eggs at the Artist Housing Hotel. Nice. Uh, Timon and Pumbaa. Oh, Pumbaa. Uh, Eminem the rapper or Eminem the candy? Ah, uh, you know, I don't mind Eminem the rapper. That's Controversial. Not- yeah. Have you ever kicked down a door? Kicked down a door? Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, do you make your bed every day? No. <laughs> uh, ever been kicked out of a bar? Uh, I have been kicked out because my friends have misbehaved at a bar. Good parent answer. Uh, <laughs> Stevie Nicks or Stevie Wonder? Stevie Wonder. Tony Stark or Iron Man? Is that the same guy? Yeah, pretty much. I like, um, I like uh, Iron Tony Stark. <laughs> uh, favorite Richard? Um, little. <laughs> and that's how we play time for two. <laughs> I went out on Richard Little. little yeah, Richard. I was, <laughs> what, what a big way to go out on, you know? That was perfect. Do uh, people often say the same Richard? No, we get Rich the Third or yeah. Richard. So I have gotten a link later or Gear or... Ooh. Yeah, gear, gear is an underrated one, um, but most of the time it's a lot of thirds. I'm like, it's good job. Yeah, yeah, I like Little Richard. I, that's a new one. I'll give you that one. You Underestimated. Get, yeah, I mean, can you think of another Richard? I mean, right now I'm like having trouble thinking of a single Richard. Uh, me too. So it's a, <laughs> and I've asked this question so many times. Yeah, yeah, I like that game. It's fun. Yeah, well, there's 150. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Don't worry. It, I'll question uh, my choices later and why I don't seem to know a single fairy tale besides the Disney film Beauty and the Beast, which I don't believe is a fairy tale. You know what? We'll do a fact check on it and then we'll. we'll yes. Please edit the podcast to reflect my, my, my ignorance. Yeah, don't worry. We'll, we'll literally just go, hi, folks. I have to pause here and just say, uh, we're, we're about to hear some disinformation uh, and we, ha- <laughs> we apologize in advance. I like when Mark Marin, I, I like his podcast, and he's always like, well, this was a weird interview with a weird person. <laughs> like, feel, will, feel, feel free to preface. <laughs> I will. I think I might call it a weird interview with a weird Annie tip. Uh, I'd be honored. Great. There we go. We have our title. Uh, yeah. Annie, before we go, my last question to you is, uh, are your parents proud of you? Um, yeah, I think uh, my... Yeah, my father was desperately proud of me. And I know that my mom continues to be. And lucky me. I hope people don't end this podcast saying that their parents aren't. Um, but you know what? That motivates. <laughs> that, that can be a motivator too. So um, yeah, I think, I think they're proud of all the weird, weird things I've done and the weird person I've become. That's awesome. My thanks to Andy Tip for coming on. This was a lovely interview. Had a great time, and yeah, can't wait to see life after. Sounds awesome. Speaking of awesome, we have an awesome Instagram page at Parents Proud Podcast, and we have an awesome email, parentsproudpodcast at gmail.com. Email us. Tell us what you think of the show. Vice versa. Tell us what you think on Instagram. (laughs) Is that what vice versa means? I don't know. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I am Matthew Schufreiter, and I'll see you next time on Are Your Parents Proud of You? Bye-bye.